of the people radio by and for the 99% for April 16th 2022 and even our intro music as always is Leonard Cohen singing democracy and it suits this show well and we just leave it there because it gets the job done you you are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM on your radio dial Missoula Community Radio live streaming on 1055 KFGM, that's eight uh, letters and numbers in a row.org. And now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen 
Montana or streaming on 1055kfgm.org and and searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio buying for the 99%. Um, and in the studio, the virtual studio, we have Linda Gillison from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And oh, Mark Andelik also in Missoula. Yes. Hello. Hey, Linda. Hey, how are you? Good to see you guys. Good, good. So... Typically, we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which in two out of three cases happen to be located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai. And I'm from... Oh, I'm going to say the homeland of the Lumbee, since they're kind of the large group well-known around Central and Northern North Carolina. Hmm. And despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there uh, still by doing our part, by wearing masks when you are inside in public, even still, I'm going to start redoing that again uh, as cases are starting to go up again um, by frequent washing of your hands and by getting vaccinated. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And uh, as always, give Mick a hearty hello. <laughs> wood, wood, Mick. Yes, Great picture of hell. you and your siblings on Sibling Day. <laughs> sibling Day? Poor parents. Yeah, is that an Easter week day. also and, and Passover? I think it's it is. Full I, up I think they're supposed point. to send greeting cards or give people chocolate. Oh, gosh. Whatever. But I have no siblings, so. Oh. I guess let it go. Mick, welcome back whenever you can make it happen. It, this show needs a qualified sound man, and you're the guy. <laughs> so, please, feel at home. Uh, and our word of the week is actually two words, collective bargaining, which is, of course, two words. Yeah. I mean, look, who writes these scripts? He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a guy um, with a cat in his arm. I know. Yeah. Well, that's probably he's probably too distracted to follow yeah, yeah, the I, simple self-explanatory yeah. rule that the word singular of the week is mm -hmm. actually singular one not two and god forbid three our writing department is falling down on the job and you know jim right linda <laughs> three and you're out it's maybe, all in pieces all maybe, right, right. gone well maybe some head should roll right maybe um no maybe just not larger any of our font friends. size and not I any of our friends. people would be able to read it <laughs> let's move right on past the guilt thing <laughs> yes okay oh, no 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 it's easter week and i'm catholic we're all about guilt and shame. Um, the recorder is rolling, so it's too late to change. Okay, <laughs> Let's go. With it. Okay. Yeah, that's that sounds good. All right. Well, um, as usual, Jim, you are the voice of reason on this show. Um, uh, only on this show, not at home. <laughs> okay. Well, at least somewhere. Um, and as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia. Uh, 
Here is that note. Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, collective bargaining is a process of negotiation between employers and a group of employees aimed at agreements to regulate working salaries, working conditions, benefits, and other aspects of workers' compensation and rights for workers. The interests of the employees are commonly presented by representatives of a trade union to which the employees belong. The collective agreements reached by these negotiations usually set out wage scales, working hours, training, health and safety, overtime, grievance mechanisms, and rights to participate in workplace or company affairs. The parties often refer to the result of the negotiation as a collective bargaining agreement or CBA. Ah, we have been covering the organizing work of the third wave workers of Missoula in their attempt to organize a union at Black Coffee Roasters. Are they at the point where they can negotiate a collective bargaining agreement? Well, first, um, they need to be recognized by their employer as a workers organization that has majority support in their workplace. That's, that's U.S. law, as a matter of fact. Um, we will have more on that later in the show, but um, that is often done, but not exclusively through a secret ballot election run by the National Labor Relations Board, also known as the NL NLRB. If they win that, then under U.S. law, the employer must enter into negotiations in good faith over a collective bargaining agreement or CBA. Ah, please tell us more about the law. I'm glad you asked, Jim. Um, <laughs> um, in, in 1935, Congress passed and President Roosevelt signed the Wagner Act. It is since then known by its more formal title, the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA, or um, in, in the biz, we call it the Act. Um, the Act. The <laughs> Act, yes. Um, uh, sounds like a novel you get at the bus station but <laughs> keep, <laughs> keep keep going i'm sure we'll get better it's it's oh it's it's fine um so th the act declares that the promotion of collective bargaining is the official policy of the united states section one of the national labor relations act states states that quote it is hereby declared to be the policy of the united states to encourage the practice and procedure of collective bargaining and doing that by protecting the exercise by workers of full freedom of association, self-organization, and designation of representatives of their own choosing for the purpose of negotiating the terms and conditions of their employment or other mutual aid or protection, end quote. That sounds clear. It was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was bitterly opposed by corporate interests, according Surprise! to the. <laughs> yes. Why wow, you girls in North Carolina never get fooled? I like that one. <laughs> um, according to the National Labor Relations Board website, uh, quote: No sooner had the Wagner Act passed than employer groups mounted a campaign against it. The National Association of Manufacturers denounced the new law as unconstitutional. And in September 1935, the American Liberty League, not to be confused with the American League, 
Okay, this is the American <laughs> Liberty League. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, or the American I, First Party. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, was a I deal think, at that time, but that's it. I, I think they, for another I, show. I think they were akin to that. Um, the American Liberty League issued a lengthy brief arguing against the constitutionality of the law and adv actually advising employers uh, to disregard it. Employers had ample cause for doubting the constitutionality of the Wagner Act. In the period from the Liberty League's brief to the 1936 presidential election, the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional much of President Franklin Roosevelt's innovative New Deal economic legislation. Mm. The federal courts issued nearly 100 injunctions against the operation of the act, and the board effectively was paralyzed until the Supreme Court ruled on the law's constitutionality. In November 1936, Roosevelt was reelected by a landslide, and several months later, he unveiled his court packing plan, complaining of the Supreme Court's nine old men, his words, who had blocked, <laughs> who had blocked his New Deal plans. In the pivotal 1937 Jones and Laughlin case, however, the Supreme Court saved the act in a five to four decision upholding its constitutionality. The court sustained Congress's power to regulate employers whose operations affect interstate commerce, even though they were not directly engaged in commerce. Mm -hmm. The court noted the effects of the 1919 steel strike as an example of how a labor dispute in manufacturing industries can impede the flow of goods in interstate commerce, end quote. Ah, thank you for fleshing it out in that order, because I've heard, I've heard so many things that attach to what you're talking about, like Lawrence O'Donnell all the time talking about Interstate Commerce Act, like, if you don't know it, you're not smart enough to listen to my the show. Commerce Clause. The yeah. Commerce Clause, exactly. Uh, thank you, Linda. It, so... The NLRA is constitutional, so it means still that encouraging collective bargaining in the official policy of the U.S. government. That's right, but it would also be fair to say that the implementation of and enforcement of this policy has been generally dismal, especially in the last 40 years. Violations of the act by employers are usually treated with punishment no more severe than having them hang a poster up in the workplace saying the employer did wrong and won't do it again. Um, back pay is also a possibility for workers fired for the activities to exercise their right to collectively bargain with their employer, but that is no, mean, no means guaranteed and subject to all kinds of deductions as well. Oh, yeah. So, so. it's not, there's not much in, uh, motivation for mm -hmm. employers not to follow the law. So, right. And Back they'd rather the, pay the okay. fines. Right. They, yeah. Uh, no, there's no, there's no fines. There's no fines. Take care that they won't have to, right? right. Not and even right. fines? Not even fines. Hmm. No. And, it, and no. so, uh, you know, uh, it, it's been a long time. It's been chipped away for a long time, right? Um, especially the, the, yeah. the Taft-Hartley Act was the biggest one, really. But Yep, yep. Good old 1947. Who can yep. forget? That's who could forget, <laughs> right? Um, I oh. remember that well. Not. <laughs> uh, well, that was give him hell, Harry. Yes. A man that's a lot more like Joe Biden than FDR and Mr. Obama and Clinton but nobody makes that comparison. So there's your, there's, there's the takeaway from this show. So back to the future. 
The PRO Act was to bulk up enforcement and penalties for violations of the act. Yes. And boy, we could talk about that for another five shows. Yeah. we And we spent, that was, I think, word of the week for one show, maybe, or at least yeah. we covered it. Um, and it's all but dead in Congress, um, th- in my opinion, thanks in part to the weak campaigning for it by the Biden administration. Yeah, I know. So... Anyway, I mean, it's at, at least it's something on the books, right? That's right. And getting right. it enforced is, is, is the problem. But mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, speaking of enforced, it's, it was just another tree in the forest and it got overlooked and there was so much that had to get done to get the country back together. And uh, so it's a law on the books, thank God. But God help you if you try to use it in your life. Yes. Um, Well, that, I mean, you could, there's more assistance, you know, than you just don't have to rely on God, um, I think, but, um, but because, because, you know, because rights are written down in constitutions and laws that does not automatically allow them to become widespread practice in the nation. Oh yeah. Like the, like the 15th amendment (laughs) or, or like, you know, so I'll, I'll bring this back to like Russia. Right. Um, and so they have a constitution that they have elections from the president all the way down to local, just like we do. And, right. um, but does that mean that Russia's a democracy? No, 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 that's I mean, absolutely it, true. And, and it sort of plays in, in, in this case in our country too, I think. So. Right. Oh, heaven forfend. <laughs> forfend. Could it be? Um, so uh, what can workers do then to engage in collective bargaining if the law is weak in protecting that right? Well, do what the black coffee workers are doing. Organize, build solidarity among your coworkers and the community, and effectively use that solidarity to protect yourselves from employer abuse. And in addition, to use the law to bolster that solidarity. So when, when, when I'm in, instructing people about organizing, I say, there's two sources of power you have. One is in the law, but don't count, don't count on that exclusively. The other more important and more fundamental, even before 1935, right? It was the active solidarity of the workers and the community that supports them that um, made the difference, that created unions and that made better working conditions. So use them yeah. both, use and them I, both. And I- and I think that's what's happened with the Amazon workers in Staten Island. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of talk and there was a wonderful mm-hmm. article in, in these times, I think just a couple of weeks right. ago. And the, the fellow who was supposed to be the organizer from some union or other um, said he did very little. They were all doing it on their own. And they knew yes. what they were doing and they had leadership from amongst themselves on the floor and right. that's maybe why they succeeded because oh they absolutely and, yeah. and there's absolutely and, and there's some I, I heard this too that they had referred back to the cio method of organizing and that was uh-huh. what they used that jane mcalevy is bringing mm-hmm. up in contemporary times I don't know if it's through McAlevey or or some other source that I they think found. It's w, you remember W. Z. Foster? Yes, William Z. Foster. Okay, William Z. Foster, and apparently oh. I, I watched a podcast with somebody um, 
couple of days ago and he was talking about how they a lot of them said that they had that book yes um, and, and, really, yeah. and it was a book he wrote about organizing the steel industry he wrote it in the mid-1920s and and at that time he was he was one of the co-founders of the wobblies the iww um, but he left them and then really was uh, with the Communist Party at the time. And he, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that he died in Russia. So there was got to be a story there. Yeah. 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 Well, and anyway, he wrote this book that really, I think it was a summation of a lot of, of decades and decades of organizing experience. And it really became kind of a blueprint for the Congress of Industrial Organ Organizations organizing in the 30s and 40s which was really the last time that union organizing uh, not only was really successful, but was th threatening the current power order in this country. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's, you know, whether through McAlevey or through Foster, it's kind of, it's really kind of the same sources, right. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of organizing. So, and we've covered that on this show too. So. Yes, we and I have. think and I think that Foster's book was just reprinted. Yes, I think so. Watching a podcast with a guy named Chris something or other Townsend or something the other day, and he's apparently a an organizer for the past thirty or forty years, and he was apparently oh, engineer uh, um, integral to getting it reprinted. Yeah. Great. So. This, yeah, that's that's all really cool, and it I'm. I am presuming now that the key to success is go back to the roots that yes. what people learn through experience in, in a hostile environment and in, in, in incorporated into the union building in the twenties and thirties yep. is valid today as much as ever. It may be if only because the, the environment is so hostile in spite of the fact that mm -hmm. unions have been available to people and they've been, um, dismantled and tossed. Right. Yep. Well, McAlevey did a lot of academic research and she, what she did was she kind of condensed all of that previous experience and, oh, and wow. academic work, but also uh, in her own experience. I mean, her experience really reflects a lot of mine as well, right? That mm -hmm. we were sort of taught haphazardly how to do this it wasn't sort of systematic. And she come up with a popular... Right popular education, essentially, of, mm -hmm. uh, of how, uh, how anyone can use these methods, not only to organize unions, but to organize like t a tenants union or, right, uh, right. or, or even reorganize politics in, in a way that right. is more grassroots oriented. Um, so, and this I mean, guy you don't have Joe to put it, oh, go ahead, Linda. Sorry. This guy named Joe Burns, who uh, is with the Communications Workers of America and the oh, okay. flight attendants mm -hmm. has just come up with this little book. Mark and I were talking about it from uh, before the before the show called it's a skinny little paperback called Class Struggle Unionism. And it's about mm. just going back to the basics and that the leaders have got to be not paid staffers or paid organizers. Right, right, people. right so much as people who are who know what the workers issues really are and um, like like the third wave workers of missoula and like right. amazon workers at staten island um both exactly. independent grassroots unions um yeah I, which I'm i think is the wave of the future myself i right. want to think so 
Yeah, I'm reminded yeah. of a Herb Lock cartoon I saw back when I was in my early teens, in like the mid '60s, and it showed big labor and big un and uh, big business. You know, dressed the same way, smoking the same size cigar, wearing the same hat, and the right. and the observer says, you know, it's getting harder and harder to tell these guys apart. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I think even then, you yeah. know, union. <clears throat> Um, you know, it's it's like a page it hit from the epilogue in Animal Farm. Um, you know, the pig learned how to walk on two feet. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, unions have big unions have so much to lose that they, you know. Oh, gotcha. I think. Okay, well, Mark. I'm, yeah, I'm well, I, I just, just as sort of a last note on this because we need to move along, but. Oh, um, no. I, 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 there's definitely a role for the big unions to play. I think a lot of them need to sort of reevaluate um, if they're business unions, right, to reevaluate that approach to unionism. And, um, um, and so, <clears throat> but like I said, you know, most, most of the workers in this country are organized in those unions and uh, need to be unleashed mm -hmm. in some fashion, right? Right, That's, right, right. Because, uh, we're, 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 we're at a very critical moment in our history right now. Mm -hmm. This is, right. this is not for the faint of heart, nor is it uh, that you can stand on the sidelines. So this is why, you know, part of the reason why we do this show, but it's also the reason why unions need to step up to the plate um, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah. can't, you know, we can't improve we'll on that, Mark. You summarized it. Okay, we'll good. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, shall we ask? Um, as usual, lots and lots of news to cover from this week, and boy, is there ever. Um, what's first in our current news, Mark? Well, first, a quick little thing on uh, COVID. Um, despite 16 months of vaccines against COVID 19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now at a slowly rising rate of about 39,500 cases a day, down from over 1,382,000 cases per day on January 10th, 2022, which was by far the highest rates for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. Currently, the U.S. is now falling to one of the lowest infection rates per capita. The highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in South Korea, New Zealand. South, I'm just surprised to say that South Korea, New Zealand, mm -hmm. France, Australia, and Germany, where new variants of COVID-19 virus is making the rounds. According to a report on the April 14th edition of National Public Radio about one of the new COVID variants, BA.2.12.1, boy, that's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that um, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It sure does. It, it, it does. Um, so they said, but it's early days for this, it's early days for this virus, the BA.2.12.1. Scientists, <laughs> scientists have detected this variant in six countries, including Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, Israel, and Luxembourg but the vast majority of cases are in the U.S. Those are localized primarily to central New York. Hmm. Epidemiologist William Hanig 
at Harvard University says, quote, it's, it is worth noting that the incidence of this variant is not very high at the moment. So the total numbers of cases are not huge at present, end quote. And what does this new variant portend? <clears throat> After a few months of COVID cases declining across the country, several regions are now starting to see cases rise again, including New England and Washington, D.C. But these ri this rise seems independent of the new variant, says vi virologist Jeremy Luban at UMass Chan Medical School. Luban says, in the Boston area where I am, uh, the numbers came down maybe as low as five new cases per day per 100,000. But now cases are creeping up again. We may be starting to see some of these new variants here now. The cases have been steadily going up before they were there, end quote. Mm. Uh, at over 988,000 deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of Columbus, Ohio. The U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world and for 16% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Um, that causes us to ask what we've been asking every show for years. Those are grim things to be exceptional at. That's it. The rate is unvarying. There's no progress. You nope. know, we are the outlier and we stay that far ahead month after month, year after year. Right. The, the two largest populations in the world, China and India, um, their rate, infection rates now are like way below even the low of the U.S. So um, just saying. Mm -hmm. um, What's the situation like in Montana now? Well, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had 3,260 deaths from COVID, up 11 people from two weeks ago. So people are still dying from COVID in our state. Um, this is about equal to that of the population of the towns of Big Sky or Cutbank. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a slowly increasing rate of about 33 new cases a day. Fully 25% and maybe closer to a third of all Montanans have had or have COVID. There are currently 11 people hospitalized with the virus, down 17 from two weeks ago, and that's greatly easing the strain on Montana hospitals and healthcare staff. We have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash your hands and to get the vaccine if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. That's right, solidarity and collective bargaining. Yes, <laughs> that's right. What's next in the news for us, Mark? Well, um, and th th there is a grossly undercovered story among so many um, on the war in Ukraine. Um, and, and that is the fate of the anti-war movement in Ukraine. We have cobbled together some information from several sources to help paint the picture of these folks. First is some recent history of how unpopular the war against the Russian speaking people in the Donbass and the Lugansk by the Ukrainian government 
which was installed through a U.S. supported coup in 2014. That's undeniable. Um, and how and that really was uh, how strong and how unpopular that war really was within Ukraine. Um, to give us some of this history, Jacques Baude, uh, or Baud, I guess maybe, um, is a <laughs> is a former colonel in the Swiss Army, a strategic analyst, specialist in intelligence and terrorism. Um, he was head of counter proliferation of small arms and light weapons within the Division of Political Affairs and Security Policy at NATO uh, during the Civil War outbreak in Ukraine in 2014. So mm -hmm. I just want to stop. Some people think this war in Ukraine just started in February. Right. And it's like, well, you know, you can say it's been ongoing even further than that. But the really hot, hostile mm -hmm. outbreak has started in 2014. Um, and um, Baud wrote that in an article uh, published in, in Sheer Post on April 12th. This is what he says, quote, at the beginning of the Ukrainian civil war in 2014, the Ukrainian army was undermined by the corruption of its cadres and no longer enjoyed the support of the population. According to United Kingdom Home Office report, when reservists were called up in March and April of 2014, 70% did not show up for the set first session. 80% for the second session, 90% for the third, and 95% for the fourth session. In October, November 2017, 70%, 7-0 of the callers, of callers did not show up during the autumn 2017 callback campaign for the military, basically a draft mm -hmm. call-up. This does not include suicides and desertions, which often benefited the autonomous in the Donbass, um, and which reached up to 30% of the workforce in the, in the ATO zone or the, the Donbass area. Young Ukrainians refuse to go and fight in the Donbass and prefer emigration, which also explains at least partially the country's democratic, dem I wish it explained the democratic deficits, the demographic <laughs> de deficit. Oh. Um, the Ukraine, now, this Too is many this, letters in that word, Mark. That, uh, it's that's not it. your fault. Yes. It, well, thank you, Jim. Um, I get blamed for a lot of things, but I can. Not that. Not that. Not not that. that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, the Ukrainian minister, this is a uh, the uh, former NATO uh, mm -hmm. colonel. Um, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense then turned to NATO to help make its armed forces more attractive. Having already worked on similar projects within the framework of the United Nations, I was asked by NATO to participate in a program intended to restore the image of the Ukrainian armed forces. But it's a long process, and the Ukrainians want it to go quickly. Um, thus, to compensate for the lack of soldiers, the Ukrainian government resorted to paramilitary militias. Mm. They are essentially made up of foreign mercenaries, oh, no. often far-right activists. Um, as of 2020, they constitute around 40% of Ukraine's forces and number around 102,000 men, according to Reuters. This is the Ukrainian military that we're right. uh, lauding and defending, right? 40% foreign mercenaries. Um, they are armed, financed, and trained by the United States, Great Britain, Canada, and France. There are more than 19 nationalities, including Swiss, 
Western countries have therefore clearly created and supported Ukrainian far-right militias. In October 2021, the Jerusalem Post sounded the alarm by denouncing the Centuria Project, which is uh, uh, training these right-wing militias. Mm. These militias have been operating in the Donbass since 2014 with Western support. These militias, stemming from the far-right groups that led the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, Mm -hmm. are made up of fanatical and brutal individuals. The best known of these is the Azov Mm -hmm. Regiment, whose emblem is reminiscent of that of the 2nd SS Das Reich Panzer Division, Mm -hmm. uh, which... Allegedly. Yeah, that's pretty serious. Yeah, that's almost as funny as the as the Seventh Mountain Volunteers of the SS that were in the Yugos, former Yugoslavia, and CPAC has picked up on their lapel decoration. Mm. It's and it's and in the in their convention uh, most recently, that was the layout of the uh, you know floor display. Well, who, <laughs> who would have thought the Ukrainian um, government would start kind of an international uh, fashion statement. Right, right. I yeah, know. yeah. Um, Who would have thought it? Yeah. A, a, um, you know, full disclosure, I have friends in Missoula that have already been asked to go do their paramilitary thing mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Yep, absolutely. I I'm glad you're still here. from everywhere lining up to go. It's hard try. enough to find people to go out and have fun with. Yeah. Don't want well, and that's and that's in keeping around the world, pretty much in supplying right. these mercenaries, which that's basically what they would be, be mercenaries fighting or volunteers. I mean, mm-hmm. God forbid um, there are also <laughs> volunteers. Yeah, that word volunteer has a very fluid meaning. <laughs> Well, here, here's another source of information. So, so the, the base, for, my, for myself, the takeaway is that um, because the, the civil war starting in 2014 in Ukraine mm-hmm. was not popular at all, and most Ukrainians, most Ukrainian men who were supposed to go and fight for Ukrainian government never showed up. Um, and they had terrible problems with that. So that's why they had to go to these paramilitary these right-wing paramilitaries like the Azov Battalion and foreign mercenaries. Um, Sounds like something Eric Prince would have to be involved in. Ah, there you go. (laughs) He hasn't been in the news. So now, so you for sure he's involved then, right? If he's not in the news. um, Oh, (laughs) I think that's how it works. Yeah. Um, Well, here's it. Oh, go ahead. Linda, do you want to Well, I was just going to say, and and I know you're going to, we're going to keep on talking about Ukraine, but one of the things that I read just about 10 days ago, and Mark and I were talking about it before the, before the show started, was a piece that had been written by Chris Hedges. And I've forgotten even where it was published. Um, I found it online. And it was partly in response to the fact that he has been tossed out of YouTube, all of his podcasts have been, uh, and of course, he's a harsh critic of the United States government in many situations. Um, But he, you know, this kind of thing that we're talking about now is just nothing that we ever hear about in the United States. Right. Um, And Chris Hedges said, well, of course, everybody's heard this statement. Um, The first casualty when war breaks out is the truth. But he said, and I think this is 
almost as important as that statement. The second is ambiguity. So suddenly there are only good guys on one side and there are only bad guys on the other side. And, And we never, nobody even goes back to say, how did Zelensky come to power or yes. whatever like that? You know, those tricky little things. Well, we'll, we'll we're going to get to the impacts of this war on, on censorship in this country uh, in yeah. a little bit. So that's a really good segue into that. Um, and so here's, and so we're, we're focusing now kind of on the, uh, this was sort of a historical setup to um, talk about the anti-war movement in Ukraine. Um, so, and there isn't that many sources of information for it, but uh, Fergie Chambers wrote in the April 12th edition of the newsletter Toward Freedom, quote, and this is a little long, so bear with me, um, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, mm-hmm. since, since Russia began what they call the special operation on February 24th in Ukraine, the corporate media has reported the Ukrainian population is united in resistance against the Russian military offensive. Aside from reports of civilians volunteering in a variety of non-military support roles, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and other state officials have urged civilians to take up arms, thereby making them combatants, Mm -hmm. Combatants. therefore could be, you know, killed by Russian troops, right? Um, Then uh, on March 9th, Zelensky approved a law that allowed that allows Ukrainians to use weapons during wartime and negates legal responsibility for any attack on people perceived to be acting in aggression against Ukraine. Ooh, so we're so we're so we're enabling kind of a uh, a mob is what it what it comes down to a lynch mob. Hmm. Um, the Ukrainian... I remember that in the 30s in Germany. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Ukrainian How... the Ukrainian. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense even posted a graphic online with instructions on how to launch Molotov cocktails at tanks. <laughs> Beneath the facade of chest beating patriotism, however, lies an anti-war movement. Just as it is diverse in its motivations to oppose the war, this movement is decentralized geographically and appears not unified enough to move as one force. In post-Maidan Ukraine, in other words, post-2014, Opposition to militarism had already been a slippery slope, well before the current Russian incursion. The case of Ruslan Katsaba, a Ukrainian journalist and conscientious objector, was perhaps the first such of state suppression under military law that had gained some degree of international attention, at least from human rights and pacifist organizations. Katsaba was originally a proponent of the 2013-14 Euromaidan protests against the government of later ousted President Viktor Yanukovych. But he began changing course when he spoke out against the 2014 violence in the majority ethnic Russian Ukrainian region of Donbass. He posted a now notorious YouTube video in 2015 calling for a mass boycott against the mobilization in the far eastern region. No doubt, and this is my aside, no doubt. Uh, uh, looking at the poor results that the Ukrainian military had in calling up uh, its its uh, members. Um, after garnering hundreds of thousands of views, YouTube yanked it. Good for you, hmm. YouTube. Ooh. For these statements, Katsaba was arrested, detained, and charged with treason, 
in obstruction of the legitimate activities of the armed forces of Ukraine. After being sentenced to three and a half years on the latter charge and spending more than a year in prison, his conviction was overturned on appeal. But in 2017, a higher court reopened the case and his trial recommenced in 2021. Shortly before the recent escalation with Russia, the state prosecution was suspended, though not entirely concluded. This reporter, and this is Fergie Chambers speaking, spoke with someone who would only go by the name Pavel. He belongs to a now banned Kiev-based Ukrainian Marxist group. Pavel recently moved from Ukraine to Bucharest, Romania, and declined to give his real name or the name of his group. In 2015, the Communist Party was outlawed in Ukraine on grounds it promoted separatism. Hmm. More recently, on March 22nd, a month into the Russian incursion, Zelensky banned 11 mostly left-wing opposition parties. That's a real sign of democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Pavel cited these bans and the well-being of his family remaining in Ukraine as reasons for his anonymity. Um, uh, Pavel says, anyone who says anything against the military, protests against NATO, or really opposes the government from any direction is immediately labeled pro-Russian. Um, and that kind of goes to what you were saying, Linda, right? That, that, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that yeah, that, one or the yeah. other. It's one. It's right. you're either one or the other. Exactly. Um, that reminds me of a former U.S. president, guy in yeah. cowboy boots. You're with us, right? Or... The the decider. The decider. You're not with me. You're an enemy of the state. That's it. Let's have some brisket. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyone is so so this Pavel, uh, who's 26 years old. Uh, told this reporter from Toward Freedom, anyone is bound to rat you out as a Russian spy if they disagree with you, nationalists or even other, quote, leftists like anarchists or progressives. Most of the country has joined forces with the nationalists. SBU, which is the Ukrainian Secret Service, will catch wind of a protest, a meeting or an article, and they'll speak to their friends in the civil, quote, civil society who will send armed nationalists to, quote, handle you. End quote. He spoke of close of a close comrade from the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, who had made statements on Facebook before February 24th against NATO interference in Ukraine in support of the Minsk agreements. And the Minsk agreements were the seven-year-old brokered ceasefire accords between the Ukrainian government and the Donbass separatists, who uh, had declared independence for two Ukrainian oblasts or states, Donetsk and Lugansk. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the Minsk agreement doesn't call for independence for these uh, uh, states. It calls for aut- autonomous Autonomy. zones right, mm-hmm. within, within the Ukrainian state. So Russia and Russia is backing that outcome. Not, uh, but I think they're also like saying uh, that's probably not going to happen either. Um, the person believes nationalists were still searching for them. Pavel and the person in hiding know of others who had disappeared in years prior. Beyond this exchange and a handful of correspondence on WhatsApp and Telegram, it has been next to impossible to find Ukrainian war resistors who had left the country to speak on the record. This is unsurprising that given that one month ago, Zelensky issued a decree of martial law banning most men ages 18 to 60 from leaving the country. Ukrainian pacifist leader Yuri Shalaya Zenko told this reporter the pre-time war, 
the pre-wartime penalty for evading military service had been up to three years in prison. The penalties have been increasing indefinitely since February 24th. It's impossible to verify what the exact penalties are, he said, as such hearings and verdicts are now closed to the public, ostensibly for the safety of judges involved. More mm. democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as of April 10th, Ukraine's border guards reported roughly 2,200 detentions of, quote, fighting age men, unquote, who were trying to escape the country. Many reportedly used forged documents or attempted to bribe officials, and others have been found dead in rural border areas. The 31-year-old Shalaya Zenko, on the other hand, has not left Kiev. Instead, he is working tirelessly with his organization, the Ukrainian Pacifist Movement, or the UPM, to promote a message of worldwide nonviolent resistance to all forms of armed conflict, including on behalf of his own country. His organization was founded in 2019, initially to oppose mandatory military service, which he calls, quote, a form of slavery, end quote. Um, Toward Freedom had the opportunity Sunday to speak by phone for two hours uh, with uh, Yuri. He noted that he was equally opposed to the practice in Russia or in any other country. But in 2019, as the war raged on in the Donbass region, Conscription in Ukraine began to take on an especially cruel nature. Quote, young men were being given military summonses off of the streets, out of the nightclubs, in dormitories, or snatched for military service for minor infractions, such as traffic violations, public drunkenness, or casual rudeness to police officers. In Ukraine, if you do not respond to such a summons, you will be detained, end quote. Or, or worse, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Shalaya Zenko is a conscientious objector. And he said, there is no exemption for conscientious objectors in Ukraine, even for clergy or religious organizations, end quote. He noted that a 2016 UN declaration on the right to peace failed to protect conscientious objection on the level of international law. Plus, uh, he said, Transgendered and gender non-conforming people are caught in a catch-22. Shalayazenko said, quote, in Ukraine, because trans women are treated legally as men, they are not exempt from the martial law order. But then they are also prohibited from fighting in the military. There are some horrible stories about LGBT people being abused both on the borders, attempting to leave, and within the military here in Ukraine, end quote. He describes Ukrainian society as increasingly militarized and that Nazism has become a real issue. He said, our country has created an existential enemy and now they say all people should unite around a nationality and a leader. The country has generally shifted far to the right. There are of course neo-Nazis, but then many of these people are not perceived as neo-Nazis, but as defenders of the country, quote unquote. Uh, He noted also that the ceasefires in the Minsk agreements had been violated on an almost daily basis by both Ukrainian forces and separatist militants. That said, a perusal of the OSCE special monitoring mission to Ukraine's camera logs in Donbass, especially in the days leading up to the February 24th, show that almost every day the first strikes were recorded from, quote, government-controlled locations, meaning meaning Ukrainian military territory. So, and then from the Donbass 
uh, the, the separatists would fire in return, generally speaking. Um, by the time the war escalated in February, the UPM's mission expanded past its usual opposition to conscription and into directly challenging the military mobilization in Ukraine and in Russia. A particular concern to the UPM is the role of NATO and the unlimited shipments of weapons coming from the West. Shalayazenko said, when the UN failed to become a true organization of global and peaceful law enforcement, the US developed NATO to institute global violent governance. These NATO weapons are moving this war to escalation and it's very profitable to the weapons corporations like Raytheon, Lockheed, and Jim's favorite, Boeing. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, I'll, um, full disclosure, uh, we're, we're a 60 cent, 66% of that list family, so I should go hide under a rock. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> don't do it, Jim. Don't yeah, do don't, it. No, don't. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't um, hide under a pillow. You know, um, talking about how um, it was made illegal for men between 18 and 60 or whatever it was to leave the country, that sort of puts a different color on the pictures that I was seeing here of all of of all of these people fleeing Ukraine, um, most of the pictures were at the Polish border. And the story was the men were all putting their wives and children on the trains and then going back to fight for the fatherland. But that kind of gives you a different possible motivation for the guys not getting on the trains right. if they're legally not allowed to get on the trains. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. exactly. Oh, yeah. It, um, it it takes some of the patriotic zeal out it of it. It does, but we've got to have patriotic zeal. Yeah, right? yeah that's right. <laughs> so um, one more source. Let's see, I think we got time for this. Um, this of is course shorter. we do. This is shorter. One more source of the Ukrainian anti-war movement uh, comes from Dave Lindorf writing on his blog, This Can't Be Happening. Uh, on April 11th. And by the way, this blog, this can't be happening. He's been uh, kind of listed by um, uh, the, the Pentagon as a uh, possible, uh, uh, un, what, what would you call it? Unpatriotic uh, uh, source of news, right? Oh, the um, Pentagon would know. The mm. Pentagon would know. Yep. Um, so uh, information, misinformation. Yeah. Right. Uh, misinformation. So, right. Right. Um, so anyway, he wrote uh, on April 11th, uh, now in Ukraine, men of all ages between 18 and 60 are required to take up arms and defend their country from a Russian invasion. Some may say that it is a struggle for the independence of Ukraine, but the issues are more complex than that. Ukraine has not been innocent in the conflict with its larger neighbor. Consider, for example, the laws passed during the 2014 U.S.-backed Maidan coup, that overthrew Ukraine's elected government, by the way, it was elected democratically. Um, and we helped support a coup that overthrew that was a long line of that. We're, oh, long line, long yeah. line. Um, uh, th that uh, a law passed during that coup, um, barring Russian language in schools and punishing and threatening ethnic Russians and also the violent attacks on the two oblasts or two states of Donetsk and Lugansk in violation of an agreement reached in Minsk that granted them autonomy. As well, regardless of the causes of this current war in Ukraine, many people simply do not believe war is the answer. 
as one young draft dodger who fled Kiev and slipped out of war-torn Ukraine, making his way to the UK, told the New York Times, quote, violence is not my weapon, end quote. Hmm. He reports getting death threats from people in Ukraine. It was a bit like that in the U.S. back in the late 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. being even suspected of being or looking like the popular image of a, quote, draft resistor could lead to ones being called a traitor, being beaten up, or having one's hair or beard cut off. I remember getting a few death threats back in those days for articles I wrote against the draft and against the U.S. war on Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. So I want to say clearly that I heartily support those men of draft age in Ukraine who refuse to support the war by picking up one of the guns being handed out by the Ukraine government and increasingly being supplied by the U.S. and NATO, Mm-hmm. Uh, and or almost entirely by that, um, and who flee the country to escape being made to fight something they don't believe in, reportedly as many as 15,000 to date. I also heartily support those courageous protesters, tens of thousands of them, who are protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some of whom are facing stiff prison, t- prison terms for their actions. But nobody is calling Russia a free country. Ukraine is a different matter, though, at least in the U.S. media. A free country is one that respects freedom of conscience. It also is one that allows freedom of travel. Ukraine's government, under the vastly overpraised Western media darling of the moment, President Volodymyr Zelensky, has violated those freedoms by barring exit from the country to men of fighting age who don't believe in this war, don't want to fight in it, and don't want to die for their country. That action of a compulsory draft in a closed border to adult males should disqualify Zelensky from talking about freedom and gives a lie to those in the U.S. who describe Ukraine's fight against Russia as being a part of a struggle between dictatorship and some supposedly free world, end quote. Mm. Mm. No words. No yeah. Word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so one of the, there's been many, and there's going to be a lot of uh, different consequences of U.S. and NATO decisions um, with this war that's going to impact this country. And um, like right now, I just read an article where uh, it looks like Ru- Russia's um, oil and gas industry is is going to be making way more profits than they made last year. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that they're that uh, the 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 oil embargo, you know, the the the, the uh, economic sanctions against that is failing, um, and also that the that you know, and the consequence rise in in gasoline and prices in this country uh, to some degree. Some, most of that is just corporate greed, and and they're mm-hmm. raising prices under the guise of that but also uh, natural gas. Um, And we're gonna cover those stories in the future, but what I thought we could cover real briefly here is the impact on censorship in this country and the erosion of our freedoms and democracy in this country because of this war. Um, And so um, I wanna read uh, something here. The Ukraine war has also emboldened those in the US who would undermine freedom for the sake of falling into line with the US government's agenda over this war. Um, The the following what I'm gonna read is from Eve Smith, it's a pseudonym of Susan Weber, 
with her excellent blog, Naked Capitalism. And this appeared on April 14th, quote, Scott Ritter has the misfortune to be articulate, well-reasoned and tenacious in staking our officialdom offending views. <laughs> that has put him on Twitter's permanent uh, poop list. <laughs> We'll recap, that's not what she says, but um, uh, we'll recap his current must-read uh, article in the April 15th Consortium News, which I would encourage everyone to read. It's quite long, it's very detailed, and he, he spares no kind of evidence and, and argument in, in this article, but it's Consortium News on April 15th, Scott Ritter's article. In it, he describes in painful detail why his second ban on Twitter this month is an obviously fabricated charge. And to add insult to injury, Twitter has allowed a Scott Ritter impersonator to set up shop, despite that clearing, clearly violating Twitter's own policies as well as identity theft laws in New York where Ritter lives and California where Twitter is headquartered. Ritter is far from the only once prominent Twitter voice to be suspended for wrong thinking on Ukraine. Glenn Greenwald, uh, and others uh, are, are, are in that camp too. And even though it required discovery uh, in the legal sense to, to prove it to the preponderance of evidence standard, Twitter's posture as enforcer of the narrative sure makes it walk and talk like a state actor. Um, and what she means by that, uh, just uh, aside, is that um, the First Amendment to, the, to our constitution forbids any government to uh, hinder or uh, uh, get in the way of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, and, and it also forbids the federal government from uh, recruiting in whatever way they do that, uh, private actors from doing the same thing to accomplish the same unconstitutional purpose. That has been found by the Supreme Court to be completely unconstitutional. And so what she's saying is that Twitter and Scott Ritter argues in his article that Twitter actually is a state actor, is acting on behalf of the U.S. government by silencing voices that are critical of U.S. policy. Um, and so that needs to be proved and that's, we'll probably see a court case on that. Um, by way of background, uh, Scott Ritter is the former UN, UN weapons inspector who is one of the loudest and most persistent and effective critics of the bogus weapons of mass destruction in Iraq claim, which was the basis for our invasion of Iraq. Ritter has now been making the rounds, mainly on non-mainstream leftist shows like CN Live, Gray Zone, Maverick Multimedia, and the Anti-War Coalition, as well as what is stereotyped as the bro-ish libertarian right, such as the Duran and Gonzalo Lira. Oh, and he has, this is uh, uh, Eve Smith speaking. Oh, and he has a temerity to still appear on the verboten Russia today. Ritter's view of the war has been decisively opposed to the version pumped out by the press. Russia, and, and Ritter's view is that Russia is winning and will win decisively. He's been overly bullish on the timetable, but has given detailed accounts of how Russia has engaged in classic maneuver warfare to shape the battlefield and dictate the nature and timing of the engagement. He's also stressed that media employees and supposed military experts 
who've never seen a day of combat keep projecting U.S. methods onto Russia, and thus completely misconstruing what is going on. Russia has not gone the U.S. route of taking out electricity, cell towers, the internet, and railroads at the onset, nor has it bombed cities into rubble, which it could easily have done. It has instead gone easy on civilians, taken more military losses, and has prosecuted the war in a more step-by-step grinding manner, slowly but systematically destroying Ukraine's ability to wage war, while avoiding its cities as much as possible. Russia follows Clausewitz, and Clausewitz argues the fastest path to victory was destroying armies, not cities. End quote. Intriguing. Yeah. Intriguing. So, um, <laughs> Um, one of the things that I want to I, I want to say about um, uh, Scott Ritter, uh, he he was pretty infamous during the during the Gulf War or the Iraq War, right? In saying that weapons, he was completely found right on that, absolutely. Uh, despite uh, Colin Powell's and George Bush's and every other sort of uh, leader in this country saying otherwise, right? That they were building weapons of mass destruction. Um, and meanwhile, forgetting, oh yeah, well at the US, we're the number one country in the world with weapons of mass destruction. And so, uh, you know, so there's no, no, no amount of uh, hypocrisy in that. No, of course not. Jim, you were about to say something? Uh, yes, <laughs> now that I managed to turn my mic back on. <laughs> I know we're real professionals in this outfit, aren't we? Well, it is Good Friday. It, it, it's I, I think it's I, ironic and significant that Clausewitz's name comes up because I thought because I mean, you know I thought that whole vision of you know armies against armies and land wars you know goes back to Napoleonic Europe and um, U.S. Grant and and Bill Sheridan um showed that uh, no it doesn't work that way and all subsequent wars have been um you know massive uh you know destruction of everything that works and anyone who could work yeah that that's been the u.s policy right all, mm-hmm. um shock and awe the, oh yeah and I, military... I remember those people <laughs> yeah and and that's and that's not the names and like it... rumsfeld and cheney well and and also um De- democratic leaders as well they're 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 united they're they're yeah, one that's the true there there's not mcnamara right on board they're right on board right yeah. there's, there's no difference in in between mainstream republican or mainstream democrat on that but but that's a different military policy than Clausewitz. and what um what ritter and and there's others that point out too very it, it, it and it's seemingly that that's how it's working is that uh, uh, what Russia wants to do is to surround the military, 40% of mercenaries, right? And probably a huge portion uh, uh, of this military in the Donbass region, they want to encircle it. And then they're, they're going to cut off all aid, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're going to okay. starve them out. They're going to starve them out. And no. this this tactic, like, uh, Stalingrad. This, what do you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, the, both the Soviet armies in World War II, and somewhat the German armies and the Finnish armies against the Soviets. Right. Right. They, they successfully used the what's called uh, kettling or cauldroning 
um, opposing militaries, right? So, and actually mm-hmm. it, it kind of is in line with uh, a lot of, um, you know, like uh, uh, Sun Tzu, right? The art of mm-hmm. war, right? Um, where you don't go strength after strength, right? You, what you try to do is you divide and conquer. And that's kind of what that, that's what he's talking about with Clausewitz, right? Clausewitz said, going to cities and fighting like, like we did in Fallujah, we destroyed Fallujah in Iraq. And it was terrible fighting. Uh, and and right, it, right. lots of civilian deaths and lots of I mean, way more than what's going on in Ukraine, apparently. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it didn't get us anything, right? It, it didn't go anywhere because they, because in, in that kind of fighting, it's, it's really tough going if you're invading army. Um, but not so much if what it is that they're trying to do is to, to cut out, to separate the military, the different armies of Ukraine and surround them and then just starve them out. And then basically that's, that's the hmm. end of the game. <clears throat> and in that, in that case, there's no question. I mean, despite all the media stuff that you hear, uh, there's no question that Russia is going to win this. I mean, I, the, the, militarily, the Ukraine military is in no shape to, <laughs> to really hmm. fight and win this. And um, arming civilians is just going to get them killed. This was a point that that the guy uh, from NATO made too, in his article, he said, this is really a dumb idea because mm-hmm. you're just going to get, it's not going to help the military situation, but it's just going to, it's unregulated civilians. And sometimes they're going to go out and do revenge killings and it's going to get them killed. And there's no good from that. Right. Yeah. Understood. Mm. Agreed. So, well, and, and, you know, in this, uh, censorship right we were talking about that earlier before too right about um chris hedges has been censored off of youtube right linda yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all uh, of his stuff that was there before any of his podcasts have just all been removed all of it Mm -hmm. every bit that's what he said in the article that i read this because that's quite a library yeah yeah my gosh well, yeah. I guess it's not a welcome library. Yeah. So here you are. Yeah. It's a, you know, some people um, talk about the, um, you know, they say, well, YouTube is owned by um, Google, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. And yes. And uh, Google is, of course, owned by one of our favorite oligarchs. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, and um, it is now. I thought it was Sergey Brin. Oh my God. Where have I been? Oh no, that's, that's, yeah, that's old. That's old hat. Um, Well, I'm glad I'm keeping up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, so anyway, uh, you know, and our, the first amendment of our constitution, which says the government should not, you know, get in the way of free speech and freedom of press. Um, A a lot of times I see that, uh, uh, you know, uh, they'll, I see this argument kind of condoning the silencing of Chris Hedges or the deplatforming mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, you know, Scott Ritter. And there's others too. There's quite a, you know, they're, they're being very aggressive uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, um, all these, you know, really popular social medias. And uh, it's, um, I, I don't find that argument to be convincing um, because they're, 
acting on behalf of the United States. I think that I think it's still unconstitutional, but um, there are solutions to that. I mean, we could we could solve that problem by Mm -hmm. by making making these social platforms publicly owned or at least regulated as a monopoly. Right. Uh, As a as a public monopoly. Uh, and, and then you don't have private interests acting as, as a censor and making decisions about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah, indeed. Gotcha. You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, Live streaming at the same time on 1055kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash vop hyphen Montana, all spelled out, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around Yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Talking About a Revolution 
by Tracy Chapman. Is it time for a cup of coffee? Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think that um, we go, we move on to two shows ago, we interviewed two workers from the black coffee roasting company and coffee shop in Missoula in their effort to organize an independent union called third wave workers of Missoula. They had a date set for their union recognition election for yesterday, but it has been sadly postponed. Uh, one of the workers had tested positive for COVID. And so according to federal government protocols, the election will now occur by mail in the very near future. So of course, we'll report on that. Uh, in my conversation with union leader Keith Farr, they are of course disappointed, but they are feeling good about winning the election when it does happen. And uh, also Jim and I participated in an action of support for the workers last Wednesday, where Union supporters were asked to come in and buy a, a cup of coffee and put your name on, uh, you know, say your name is Union Yes or Solidarity or something. Um, and the place was hopping with supporters from opening until closing. I was there past closing, actually. And great. Uh, it was a great sign of support. Um, well, good for you, Mark. Yeah, well, usually you, the, the kind of people that stay past closing are not constructive <laughs> servants of a labor movement yes yes well well it was it was quite the scene right jim no i had a wonderful time and i i, I am so motivated about getting out on the street raising a sign and right making solidarity happen cool mm -hmm. yep so the in in the workers were um, one of them um said that uh, it brought her to tears how moved she was with the support from the community and uh on, and they were by it was definitely way busier than it would have been uh, on a normal wednesday so so it was a good action and there was a lot of people brought roses you know under the oh. kind of the title of uh, give me bread but also give me roses, bread and roses. Yep. Yep, that's sure. right. so rosie schneiderman um right. so yeah, it was great. It was fun. And, and I, I stayed only because there were so many people that I knew were coming in. Of course, I had to talk with them. And, you know, I, I remember my son, Alex, because I've done this all my life, right? And, and God, he'd be jerking on my arm like, Papa, uh, let's go. Let's, let's go. get out of here. Yeah, let's get out of here. I unfortunately dragged him through all that. But yeah, time um, for a discussion with him about how he ever got fed and clothed and had a <laughs> nice. roof over his head low those many decades well he he's you know. kind of turned into a little union organizer himself so that's, oh, good good okay so the lessons have not been lost on him yeah no it, it was just you know it's kind of like um we, we're supposed to go home and papa's still talking right so yeah <laughs> sounds like a song title Papa, yeah. don't preach. <laughs> <laughs> Papa, don't talk to the next person that comes right. in line. Right. Um, well, I was thrilled to stand in line for Monica Trinnell. Is it okay for us to drop names? If you want, yeah. Okay. Monica, glad you got a chance to press the flesh while I was standing in line to get yeah. you a cup of coffee. Good. Good. Yeah, she was she was there in support for sure. So that was great. And she's running. She's a, a Democratic candidate for Congress, our new congressional seat in Western Montana, wow. or our, oh, our revived congressional right. seat. It's one we had before, but yeah, I'm glad that random endorsement just sort of fell into the dialogue. Well, yeah, it wasn't uh, in the script. We're not breaking any laws. <laughs> 
Um, so, uh, well, and there are, are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana as well, among other coffee and service industry workers too. Um, in fact, I, um, I just got a call before we went on uh, to record this uh, from a worker at a service nonprofit here in Missoula, a very well-known one. And she's thinking, well, maybe we need to do something. So mm. Maybe we need to organize. So um, Nameless here, at least for now. Name Well, absolutely nameless until um, they're ready to come above board. So, right. Um, so in it, it, it's, of course, it's not a big grocery store. That's important. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Um, okay. Yes. Hey, it um, is Good Friday, you know. It right? is Good I'm Friday. Just trying yeah. to nail it so everybody knows. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, okay. Well, we all bear our cross, right, Jim? Yes. <laughs> and the segues just keep rolling. <laughs> um. So I, one thing I wanted to make mention, and this is just kind of like a little, our little ad, I suppose, is that uh, any worker from Starbucks or any other workplace for that matter, who is interested in organizing, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at their, at their email site, which is uh, westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. And you leave a message, someone will get back to you and uh, uh, will help you out. Let's welcome Miles Davis and the Quintet. Ha <laughs> ha 
Hello, uh, my name is David Jones. I am an organizer with the Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America and a member of the Eco-Socialist Working Group within that organization. And this is an editorial that I wrote lately with a lot of help from the editorial working group as well. The title is Energy Security is National Security. One thing about fossil fuel profiteers, they sure know how to turn other people's misery into opportunity for themselves. In a recent op-ed published in Montana newspapers, well-paid mouthpieces for the carbon emission industry waste no time in using the suffering of Ukrainians to push their polluting agenda. Using the oldest playbook in the world, they claim America is in a, quote, perilous position, unquote, thanks to, you guessed it, environmental extremists and their, quote, endless expensive litigation, unquote. Litigation which, by the way, fossil fuel pushers lose time after time because they are consistently on the wrong side of the law. According to the authors, citizens should be terrified because, quote, we've squandered opportunities to develop our natural resources and solidify our energy independence, unquote. Nothing could be further from the truth. At a time when climate science tells us we must end our addiction, Hello, the combined production of U.S. fossil fuels increased by 2% in 2021, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. What should terrify us is an industry willing to sacrifice our very future for their short-term profits. One thing the authors do get right, if inadvertently, is that, quote, energy security is national security, but only if the source of that energy does not destroy the very biosphere upon which all life depends, a concern these carbon pushers apparently don't share. To carry the point further, both history and current events teach us that no nation can be secure until every nation is secure. That is, until we as a species learn to cooperate in order to preserve our collective security. This will only be accomplished by equitably and democratically sharing resources. By respecting the, light, the right of all living beings to exist and by learning to live in harmony with, rather than at war with, nature. This is a thing fossil capital can never do. Those who wrote this piece, including the CEO of the Montana Chamber of Commerce and a county commissioner who is also a board member of Montana Association of Oil, Gas and Coal Counties, believe they can frighten Montanans into foreclosing their children's future just to save a few cents at the gas pump. However, their cynical strategy is doomed to crash upon the reef of climate reality. Continuing fire, flood, heat waves, and famine will do much more than simply, quote, cut into pocketbooks, unquote. Just ask the folks whose homes were in the path of last summer's fires, whose crops are being destroyed by drought, or whose homes are now submerged by rising seas. 
it is not just Montana where these spurious security and pocketbook arguments are being made. Citing dependability and cost, the governing board of the Tennessee Valley Authority, all presidential appointees, has recently approved spending $3.5 billion on new gas-fired power plants. Using the same pretext, the U.S. Postal Service has proposed adding 165,000 gasoline fuel vehicles to its fleet. And our local utility wants to add more methane gas to its portfolio by building a power plant in Laurel, Montana. It is time to reject these industry scare tactics Instead of an absurd doubling down on fossil fuels, imagine each community managing its own renewable energy source and grid. Imagine citizens coming together to design better transportation systems, food systems, and walkable cities. Imagine a new economics designed to protect and conserve rather than waste and despoil. What could be more secure or independent than that? The following is a recording of a rally on the Missoula Courthouse steps on March 23rd. After or oral arguments were provided on the 350 Montana Group's lawsuit against Montana's largest utility, Northwestern Energy, and against the state of Montana. The suit specifically takes aim at a law passed by the Montana legislature in 2007 that gives Northwestern Energy and only Northwestern the right of having their electricity genera generation projects pre-approved by the Public Service Commission. This has resulted in plants not operating, being paid for by Northwestern customers for decades. 350 Montana argued that this 2007 law unconstitutionally favors just one corporation to the detriment of ratepayers. The group filed the lawsuit both to provide a reduction in prices paid for electricity and to push Northwestern hard to drop their carbon fuel electric, electrical generation far sooner than their planned 2042 uh, phase out. Emissions from their carbon fueled electric emissions from the carbon fuels like coal and petroleum are major contributors to the ever worsening climate disaster. Montana. And thank you, Jerome, for joining this case. Thank you. Our Montana state constitution makes a big promise. It promises that all of us are born free and we all have certain inalienable rights. Those rights include the right to a to a healthy and clean environment. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> but every summer we have excessive heat and then we have excessive drought and then we end up with excessive smoke. From where I'm standing right now in 2017, you could watch a big scary forest fire burning most of the summer right up here near Lolo. Any physician will tell you, myself included, that breathing forest fire smoke all day long is really, really unhealthy. 
Not only that, it drives away tourists, and that's a big hit to our economy. <clears throat> the smoke from burning coal is even worse because that's, that smoke contains poisons like mercury and arsenic. Earlier this month, Northwestern Energy also made a promise. <clears throat> they promised to go carbon neutral by 2050. <clears throat> by 2050, wait a minute. <clears throat> that's, that's, way too, that's way too little too late. <clears throat> that's, like an, that's like an alcoholic promising to give up drinking, but not until 2050. <clears throat> The problem is, as our two attorneys, and let's give them a big hand, once more, ably pointed out, is that Northwestern Energy has this special sweet deal pre-approval statute that gives them a big incentive to build and run big, expensive fossil fuel plants. So that's what they do. That's what they like to do. We're challenging that law in court, of course, uh, with the aid of our able attorneys. But meanwhile, Coal Strip has reached its retirement age after 35 years. <clears throat> but guess what? Northwestern Energy wants to keep it running for another 20 years until 2042. Ooh. How crazy is that? Crazy. <clears throat> Not only that, but they also want to spend $275 million building just the first of another whole generation of, you guessed it, big expensive fossil fuel plants. Northwestern Energy, from my medical point of view, clearly has an addiction problem. <laughs> and they need, they need what all addicts need. They need an intervention. They need an intervention from us, the ratepayers. If that intervention succeeded, that intervention succeeded, we would expect that Northwest Energy would close Coal Strip, not in 2042, but real soon. Yeah. We would expect that Northwestern Energy would start investing in wind, solar, got plenty of that here in Montana, and, and storage. Not because they want to, they, they apparently don't, but because that's simply the cheapest way to generate electricity nowadays. Yeah. And we also expect that if this intervention, and that's what happened today, an intervention, if this intervention succeeds, Northwestern Energy will not build any more, let's hear it, big expensive fossil fuel plants. All we're asking Northwestern Energy to do, <clears throat> all we're asking them to do is keep up with the times. 
for crying out loud, not in 2050. We need change and we need it now. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, finally, I get a chance to thank our lawyers, Monica Trinnell and Tom Tostall. It's not easy. It's not easy suing one of the state's largest businesses and the state itself. Um, these two have followed the twists and turns of the case, fighting off dismissal, skewering dozens of opposes, opposing lawyers' briefs, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. And Monica, who will be our representative in, the, in Congress pretty soon, has consented to say a few words about the case. Thank you, Jeff Smith. Thank you, everyone from 350. And, um, uh, a shout out to all of you. So just a little bit of a background here. I want to um, also acknowledge and remember my friend and client, Marty Wild, um, with whom this case started um, uh, several years ago. So we um, brought, he was a wind developer and died very tragically. And one of the last things that he said to me was, um, Monica, you just you know keep chasing after all of this, and you're best when you're unbridled. So go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> and and to all of you here today, what we heard in the courtroom was um, what I've been hearing from this monopoly for a long time. It's about money. It's about money. It's about money. And what it takes is people willing to show up and to put the lie to the argument to look people in the eyes who are being paid well to say things that aren't true. And that's where we are in our country right now. That's where we are in Montana. It, it takes courage. It takes spine. It takes an intense sense of justice and fair play. And each one of you here today has that in spades or you wouldn't be here. Thank you. So onward, 350, you'll do your work. You'll wake up every morning and continue to do your work. And Hedges at MEIC, you will wake up and continue to do your work. Yes. As mothers, we will wake up and continue to do our work. Yes. And our work as citizens, my co-counsel, Tom, to whom I am deeply indebted and grateful. The lion's share of the work. And I'm always happy to have a mentor and a friend. So thank you so much for being with us on this case and this project. Together, our work together is to defend the democracy, which we are all so privileged to have and watching what's happening in Ukraine, we know people die for the right to come to a courthouse and challenge the constitutionality of what the legislature did. This is a right of tremendous privilege, and by exercising the right, we are honoring it and honoring everyone 
who gave us this. We stand tall as Americans and as, and as Montanans by holding our monopolies to the letter of our laws and by defending our Constitution. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And I'm running for Congress. <laughs> Thank you everybody for coming. Stay tuned. Any any uh, any last thoughts? Solidarity, stand strong. Yeah. Stronger together. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, and another thing that that just came to my mind is a, a distinction. I mean, we've been talking about the Democratic Party and so on and so forth off and on a distinction that this Joe Burns makes among business unions, liberal unions and class struggle unions. Right? right. And he points out that the, the business of getting, you know, sucked into one political party or the next is just crazy for unions because we don't have a political party now which is a pro-union political party or a pro-worker political party right um so he associates this with the you know the um attack on unionism ever since ever since uh, reagan and um um, the fact that unions have declined, but hoping for the best. Yeah. Yep. I think, I, I think that point is, is making, uh, unions relevant to people who aren't currently organized as well. Right. Right. And in, in the, in the sense of, uh, fighting for, uh, and, and, you know, you see this in the Chicago Teachers Union, you saw it in the Los Angeles Teachers Union, you saw it in the Minneapolis more recently, like just last month, uh -huh. Minneapolis Teachers Union, where, um, you know, regular unions are actually fighting for community things, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and, um, and I think that that sort of uh, uh, bargaining for the common good, that's what it's uh -huh. called. There's a uh -huh. kind of an alliance of unions working on that is something that uh, I think a lot of unions should take a, a more serious look at because right. just negotiating on behalf of your own members um, is, is not cutting it anymore. I mean, you got to do that. That's kind of a basic thing, but there's got to be more. So, yeah. And I, I mean, it's, and then I'll, I'll get off my high horse here, but I, you know, I once had talked to a union member and um, uh, she was saying, Oh, mm, fight for 15. I'm just not having that. I'm not having that because uh, in my union, we fought hard for the, for the races we've gotten. And I said to her, wait, union members are supposed to be good. Union membership by some people is supposed to be good for all workers, right? We're trying to raise the bar for everybody. And um, I think that's the thing. You can't get people involved in as much work as it's going to take to get a union if they don't have something more compelling than right. 
just their salaries or just their working hours or just their own, um, um, just their own um, working conditions and how back in the early days of the 20th century with the CIO and with UE and with the FE that Tony Gilpin talks about in her book, yep. they were they were the ones who made the unions, right? right. Um, they right. didn't all last really long because when the communist scare came along, some of them were just overwhelmed by it, um, right. by the attacks. But still the reason they, they gave people something to think about that was bigger even than just their own jobs. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you for mentioning that, Linda, because that, that really wraps yeah. it up well yeah. that uh, it's easy to be in favor of unions when the only issue is compensation but right. um, the far greater goal and the far greater expectation and need is your community. You have, a, you know, a shared concern for the workplace and the people that are there and the community that the right. people come from and these and the terror tactics and the attempts to make you uncomfortable in your pursuit to make your life more comfortable. Um, will always work just fine if you're not visualizing what you're doing on a much higher plane. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, right. And, and because I think that capitalism is really in, in major crisis right now, I mean, there's no mm -hmm. two ways about it. And um, that it's, you know, what is, uh, yeah, honestly, I think, I think the labor movement needs, and, and young people, like half of young people are, are do not consider themselves to be in favor of capitalism, right? Which is wow. which is astonishing, right? Um, and, uh, and and so what they're looking for, you know, like at least for me, right? I, I think that we're to a point where the, the sort of liberal democracy, uh, the, the things that we all grew up with, is uh, falling apart and is not able. To hold the center, and it's it's got contradictions, right? So right. you you have democracy politically, but you have no democracy in the workplace, except for what unions can bring right. to it. And so right. you know, having undemocratic organizations within a democracy doesn't work. One one or the two has to give way, and I think at this point we're we have a a stark choice at this point. Mm -hmm. Either um, we go with authoritarianism kind of like, you know, what Trump was trying to promote or, or what, what Putin is promoting or what, uh, you know, uh, various and sundry forces in this country or democratic socialism. I don't okay. see, I don't, the, the middle cannot hold. And uh, so. As John Dunn said, right? Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone. And that was way back in 1600 or something at the beginning of the modern period. And he said, everything's falling apart. It's going to be we, a different We'd world. be lost without you, Linda, because uh, uh, that, uh, that's, 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 that, 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 that's quote we all should keep in the back of our head because it's so and, and And explain a little more about what, what, it, what it is that was falling apart. It was religion that well, was falling apart. He, he said that um, uh, people don't have, uh, partly it was a respect for hierarchy, I've got to say, you know, that there was a certain way in which society had worked. And the modern age was really, um, was really um, challenging that. And one of the things I think that moved him was that whole, 
um, century-ish in the 1500s of the challenge to the Roman Catholic Church and the challenge to the kind of spiritual world uh, that people had thought about. And it was the kind, same kind of place where, um, uh, remember, Descartes, sort of oh. went to his great un, unbodied mind and right, said, I right. think, therefore I am, because it was so scary to be an embodied right. person at that time. So um, uh, maybe we're going somewhere. I he hesitate yes. to say postmodern because I don't know. Um, well, I had to catch that. But, here, you know, but some, <laughs> somewhere that's different. And uh, uh, I, I can't remember who said, you know, it's a, uh, uh, I think it was Gramsci. Didn't Gramsci say, you quoted to me once, Mark, who said, a new world is being birthed or something like that. Right. And, but, but hasn't yet come. But now hasn't the, yet come. Now is the time of monsters. Right. Now is the time and, of monsters. Oh exactly. and, and, I, and I think that's really similar to the, to the uh, Dunn quote. And in, in some ways, kind of similar to the Yeats uh, poem that we had, uh, uh -huh. you know, quoted a few, uh, a few where the center cannot hold, right? Uh -huh. And people who are animated by uh, destruction are, are, are full of vim and vigor. And those who, uh, you know, who want to hold to the, to, you know, to the status quo are, are um, like lost. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we, you know, and what's good about what you brought up, Linda, is that in history, humans have faced this kind of world change before we right. face this. It's scary times. I think it's really scary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it's but it's also a time where new things can be born out of um, as long as, you know, we keep our heads and we keep our um, uh, we keep our mission alive within ourselves and, and maintain solidarity as much as we can. I think, I think we can uh, birth a new world in out of the shell of the old. Yeah. And I hope it'll be better. I mean, I, I think yes. that back at the time of the end of the founding fathers, you know, there was the thing about a new age now begins and you begin it and then it may work for a long time or it may not work for a long time, right. but it's the nature of human limitation that we, we can't see exactly what's going to happen. We can mm -hmm. only yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. You can't understand or anticipate the future, but you sure can hope for it. Yeah. yeah. And make a better one. Try and to make, make Definitely. And in, in, in what we do now helps set this, set the stage for what happens later on, you know, even if right. we're gone. Um, right. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, we're going to uh, um, uh, uh, conclude our broadcast with that. And um, thank you very much, uh, Linda Gillison. You, oh, you too, as Mark. always. You and Jim. And I appreciate you, Jim, as always, right? And uh, our sound Absolutely. sound guy. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Absolutely. This this was perhaps my favorite show. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah the uh, it was it was fluid beyond imagination. We really got the formula <laughs> down. That's All because right. it was your birthday, Jim. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of our great programs on the air. Just go to the website at 1055kfgm.org and you can make your contribution there. 
Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. And please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change. And it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. Democracy is coming to the 